guessing that a certain number of us in the room, part at least part of what drew us to the teachings of the Buddha and this path of practice, was just the grounding uh, in the reality of dukkha. And it doesn't mean that we're morbid or lifeless, you know, depressives or something like that. But in a way for me, you know, just personally coming across these teachings a long time ago, it was so trustworthy to have somebody or these teachings talking about something that I felt like was so apparent in my life, this pervasive sense of things not really working. And of course, I was a pretty privileged, well-off in a sort of middle-class and health-wise sense. And still, you know, as I felt into my life, it was something, it was clear that, oh, there's a lot of stress. (laughs) My heart feels burdened. So it's nice, you know, I mentioned coming together as we do on these evenings and harmonizing together and, and acknowledging that simple truth. You know, it isn't easy being human. It isn't easy being a human being. It isn't easy being sensitive. Tonight I want to talk about equanimity because equanimity is such an provocative and essential sort of flavor of Dharma. And it unfortunately can lend itself to a kind of imitation. You know, we're Buddhists. We know we're supposed to be equanimous. (laughs) So it, it seems so easy just to start acting equanimous. It can be a bit cultish, you know. (laughs) In Minnesota, we call it Minnesota nice. Oh, whatever you want to do. Well, that's fine. So part of our exploration of equanimity is really getting a clearer sense over the years of practice. What does that evenness, that balance, that it's really, ultimately, it's a radiant balance. It's not chilled out. I mean, there's a coolness to equanimity, but it's enlivened. It's an enlivened emotion, if you want to call it that, or an enlivened way of relating, way of being. It's bright, but it's cool. And can we be a full human being with emotions, with duties and responsibilities and balanced, even equipoise? I remember a long time ago, I heard a talk by a Zen teacher And he told this sort of a Dharma joke, I guess. Um, 
And it, it's something like, you know, an ordinary person experiences, experiences themselves as being vulnerable some of the time. And a well-practiced person, someone who's done a lot of good practice, experiences themselves vulnerable all of the time. And so this is, this helps us understand something deep about equanimity. You know, it's not about becoming insensitive. It's really about knowing what to do with sensitivity. The sensitivity of being human. The sensitivity of caring, caring about our own life, caring about the wider world, caring about the earth. Because I don't know about you, but um, I think it's pretty common for us humans to, at least at times, sense that the sensitivity is too much. I'm feeling too much. You know, and that's why we have stuff like alcohol and drugs and TV, media, you know, ways to desensitize or to escape, at least temporarily, our sensitivity or to dull it, right? I mean, it's, it's a significant part of our economy, different ways to dull sensitivity. It's sort of interesting, isn't it? And here we are, you know, there's probably few places on the planet that are more suitable for increasing one's sensitivity than the forest refuge. You know, it's so, the environment is so still. And I was saying to somebody in one of the practice meetings, you know, this, the stillness, the simplicity of the environment is so much more so than most of the monasteries that I've experienced and heard about. You know, it's really an unusual place. And if we're here for a while, as many of you have been here for a while, even if you're like not trying to practice, just being here, just staying here, just relaxing here, really sensitizes us. And then we really get a sense of what equanimity is as that sensitivity increases because we see, you know, when we're really sensitive and a storm blows in, some memory or whatever it is, some trigger, because we're so sensitive, the sensitivity, you know, amplifies the drama for however long it lasts. It's like we have a really amazing production studio. So whatever the heart and mind construct, it's like really done well, very convincing, very draws us in, pushes us, pushes the heart around. So it's a really good place to clarify this taste of the path of equanimity, this flavor of dispassion. You know, we have a lot of words in the Dharma disenchantment, equanimity, 
calm. And we know the opposite. And that really helps. So even if we don't know in terms of our direct experience, we don't, we're still feeling a little unsure of equanimity. Well, we know what distractedness and agitation and reactivity, you know, we know what it's like to be swirling in some storm. So let's just do a little reflection for maybe five or 10 minutes, just to kind of get a taste. You don't need to change your posture, but eyes open or eyes closed, just feeling the sitting body. And of course, equanimity is one of the four Brahma-viharas. It's uh, an expression of love. So as we feel the body and hopefully sense some basic friendliness and tenderness, in a way the body is an innocent victim of so many forces that buffet it like whatever the mind is thinking, it in one way or another lands or moves through the body, the body receives the reverberations of the mind, what it's up to. And so just sensing that I do care about this body and I care enough to be close right now, willing to feel whatever's here to feel in the body just as it is. And even though being close now to the body, feeling, allowing the body to be, I understand that the way it is now, the way it is, is due to many causes and conditions. My wish is that the body be at ease, won't necessarily change how it is, but still feeling moved, may this body be at ease. Because the wish that the body be at ease, it's a beautiful thing, that wish. Whether or not it makes the back pain better, may this body be at ease. I care enough to be close, caring enough to feel, to be intimate, and to wish well. May this body be at ease. And I care about the sensitive heart here Just feeling the heart center, however it is. It might feel numb, might feel radiant and expansive. I care enough about this sensitive heart here to do my best to be close and to simply feel 
whatever feelings are here in the heart, just as they are. Just willing to be close as best I can. And to wish well, may this heart be at ease. And again, the wisdom of equanimity tells us that the way the heart is right now, the feelings that are moving through, they are the natural result of so many causes and conditions. But still the wish that this heart be at ease is itself good, feels good. So again, may this heart be at ease. May this heart be at ease no matter what comes and goes, no matter the feelings that are here. May this heart be at ease. And of course, sensing that we're in a room with a lot of sensitive hearts, in this world filled with sensitive hearts. The full range of human experience and beyond the human's lived experience, all the beings with sensitive hearts. And just appreciating the exposure of all those hearts in happy states and miserable states, privileged or oppressed. I care enough doing my best to be close and to wish well. May all these sensitive hearts be at ease. May all beings near and far, this heart here, all hearts there, May our hearts be at ease. And this sincere and beautiful wish, it understands that how any particular heart is, is of course a function of so many causes and conditions, not just our wish, of course. But still, There's this simple wish 
May all beings be at ease in this changing and uncertain world. May all beings be at ease. All the creatures in the forest, all the people on the planet, all beings without exception, May we all be at ease. And just sensing the goodness and the resonant balance of that goodness. As if the heart, this goodness in the heart had a simple warm glow Shining out simply in all directions. And especially sensing the stability, the resilience of this balance, a heart that's not afraid of causes and conditions unfolding as they do. So a love that's not dependent on how things unfold. And just simply wishing ease above, below, all around, everywhere, every way. As the Buddha said, I will abide, pervading the all-encompassing world with equanimity, this radiant balance of love. Exalted, abundant, boundless, free from hostility, free from ill will. I will abide. I know some of you are doing metta practice as one of the practices, and you might just be curious about that balance informing the compassion, the metta, the appreciative joy, sort of stabilizing it, increasing the resilience of it. And just 
taking it as a theme regardless of the kind of practices that you're doing, what would it be, you know, to be living our lives here and then when we go home, but curious about equanimity? And, you know, there's some, there's a lot of different similes that are used in the tradition, but one that's a little bit, you know, hard to really, um, it can feel sort of a setup for self-judgment. The Buddha said, uh, as a single slab of rock won't budge in the wind, so the wise are not moved by praise, by blame, or the eight worldly winds, you know, gain and loss, pleasure, pain. To be happy, rest like a great tree in the midst of all these vicissitudes. That's another line from the Buddhist teachings. And I think part of... uh, the way to begin is, you know, when we do feel pushed around by whatever's arising in the moment, to have space for that. Like, don't try to rush back to this idea of me being unmoved. But how about being okay, being moved, <laughs> being balanced? Oh. The mind is a mess right now. The heart is really tight right now. Very negative right now. Because uh, that's what equanimity understands, right? Equanimity is this wisdom element and in these beautiful Brahma Viharas, because it understands the truth of karma, cause and effect, causes and conditions, that everything is lawfully unfolding, or a wonderful line from Sylvia Borstein, everything is breathtakingly the only way that it can be. And then I think it goes on, this is somewhat of a paraphrase, my heart opening with equanimity can respond with compassion because it understands that the way it is right now is breathtakingly, it's shockingly the only way it can be. And you see, I'm sure you sense, this is a real surrender or even submission. That's the one given, I mean, Especially, you know, as we begin, this is sort of the, I think in the tradition, as I understand it at least, uh, early Buddhist tradition, the sort of initial, the initial coming into alignment with wisdom in the sort of Buddhist sense is understanding karma, the, the conditional nature. I mentioned, uh, a lot of you weren't here, but one of my early talks this month, I mentioned the simile the Buddha used of the hen laying eggs and incubating them, sitting on the eggs. And the simile the Buddha used, the point the Buddha was making is like the eggs hatching 
is the result of all the supportive, necessary supporting conditions being there, like the hen being atop of the eggs, enough warmth, enough protection, then those eggs, most of them will hatch. Not the hen wanting the eggs to hatch. That's not one of the necessary conditions for the hatching. There could be a very indifferent hen, but if that hen sits on the eggs enough, they're going to hatch. And this is that uh, understanding of causes and conditions. It's like if my mind, for whatever reason, obsesses for a day and a half, especially a mind that's somewhat concentrated because I'm at the forest refuge, you know, then there will be unavoidable consequences energetically, bodily, mentally for a while after that long obsession. I mean, obviously we're not going to obsess every moment for a day and a half, but, you know, as the sort of predominant theme in the mind, sure, we can be caught up in some drama for a while, right? We don't have too many things to interrupt. (laughs) It's great. Nothing really interrupts the continuity of mindfulness and nothing really interrupts the destructive cycling of the mind. And then, then mindfulness maybe kicks back in at some point. Forgiveness, even a serene sense of humor about... But... Something has been set in motion and we have to submit, you know, the energetic, bodily psychology has been disturbed by that storm. And what wisdom does, what equanimity does is understand, oh, cause and effect. Now it's like this. It can, you know, breathtakingly, it can't be other than the way it is. I wish it hadn't happened, but it did happen. And now it's like this. You know, and it's the same, um, a lot of us, because of the pandemic, you know, we haven't been able to be in such a nice secluded setting, many of us at least. And so there could be, and then, you know, it's for a lot of us, it's been, there's been some difficulties. So we come here and Our job isn't to expect things to be different, but to submit. Oh, it's like this. This is the residual. This is what's left over from having been living exactly the way the heart, body, mind has been living. When it's like that, then there's this. And it's not even our personal karma, it's our collective karma. And I think, you know, my understanding at least, there's really no end to the karma. But there is an end to misunderstanding the relationship to the karma. Conditionality is sort of the ground of what's happening. What's in play is how the mind relates to the conditional nature of all things. Does it personalize? Or does it see it as nature? And of course, that's a deeper understanding of equanimity. We get a little taste of equanimity 
every time we hit the sweet spot and conditions are the way we like them. And uh, we feel a lot of love, you know, metta, that sort of wholesome love without attachment, that goodness without any agenda. You know, it's a temporary liberation because it suppresses or removes aversion and a lot of the a lot of the mental torments, right? I'm sure you felt that, how good it feels, how right it feels, how healing it is when that metta is just there and has some stability for a period of time. And if we, and we should, you know, if we have the sense to look, to check, we'll see that quality of contentedness and balance. It's like a lot of things that would otherwise bother us don't bother us. Temperature being too hot or too cold or somebody chewing with their mouth open next to us or, you know, whatever our little or big triggers might be at a place like this. All of a sudden, it's like the heart has some immunity because it feels good. It's in a wholesome place. So, um, you know, some of my teachers would say that that equanimity is there because of the quality of our experience, because the objects we're experiencing are so pleasant, then it it kind of creates this uh, equanimity because the conditions are so nice, basically. It's like we see people who have a really nice life and they seem happy and equanimous. But, you know, if they end up in poverty or if their body gets sick or they're humiliated, they might be a monster. I mean, we don't know. Same with us. So it's not that we shouldn't um, appreciate and even in ways that doesn't cause harm, gravitate towards pleasant states. We should. Pleasure is a very useful dharma medicine to support the path. (laughs) That's why it doesn't always work, but, you know, that's why we go get another cup of tea. Or, especially this time of year, you know, take advantage with the sunshine when it's strong enough to, you know sort of deal with the cold temperature and we can get that sort of radiant warmth from the sun. It's like a simple pleasure to take advantage of or enjoy the sight of a sunset or a sunrise or the angelic grounds we had with the freezing rain. I think we'll get a little bit more tomorrow, evidently. A little bit more freezing rain and just the sparkly quality that that can bring. And so it's, it's useful. It's the same thing with a good sit where there's some samadhi, some real settledness, and that inner pleasure that arises, the calm, the joy, the sukha, the ease, the stillness that comes when things settle and gather, the mind, heart gathers. That pleasure that's there will result in some equanimity 
it's conditioned by the good concentration or the the meal that you really wanted and there it is or whatever the nice set of circumstances might be but that's okay because we can learn oh this mind is capable of balance now the balance and the resilience and the clarity that comes from that balance is temporary or it's conditioned it's arising because the conditions are really nice just the way the mind likes it but the balance demonstrates something that's possible for the mind so that's what I meant earlier when I said like uh, as a kind of homework just to be interested when conditions come together and the heart feels safe and there's uh, enough pleasure inner or outer due to inner or outer conditions there's enough pleasure that to really notice how that shifts the mind's relationship to sensuality because there's some contentedness the mind relates to all the other you know, just the field of experience with less greed and aversion because it's feeling content, it's feeling good. Well-being gives us some immunity to greed, hatred, and delusion. It can also trigger attachment. (laughs) But we can use it skillfully, well-being, and ordinary pleasures that come our way. But of course, there's a more profound kind of equanimity that arises more slowly, more gradually with the deepening of insight. I was looking at an article um, that I read a long time ago. I think it's like written 20 years ago by uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, a wonderful um, Buddhist monk, a Westerner American and abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego. He practiced in the Thai forest tradition, and one of his teachers, Ajahn Suat, used this simile about uh, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. Is a mountain heavy? It may be heavy in and of itself, but as long as we don't try to lift it up, it won't be heavy for us. (coughs) And that's a kind of uh, simile about equanimity. You know, there's, we have our preferences, our likes and dislikes. This is, you know, this arises conditioned by the past. We have to submit <laughs> to these, to the sort of, you know, the way, the habits of our mind to perceive, oh, I want that, oh, I don't want that. But we don't have to, in a sense, lift it up. There's a great uh, chapter in Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, which has been really one of my, uh, when I... I want a little transmission, I'll pull out. I mean, there are a lot of good collections of teachings from Ajahn Chah. If you don't know, he's one of the great Thai forest 
Buddhist monks and teachers and trained a lot of uh, really influential in terms of the Dharma coming to the West. And uh, yeah, but just to be able to draw on that, I just sometimes will open it up in the middle of a retreat and read a page or two. And some of you, I'm sure, have your own version of a book you turn to like that when you need a little Dharma transmission. But one of the chapters is called Right View, The Place of Coolness. And uh, he uses, he reports a few of the similes the Buddha used. Uh, One was a jackal or a wild dog that was around where the, the, the Buddha was and other monks and probably other practitioners. And uh, this dog was, or wild dog, was really unsettled. It would sit down, and then a few seconds later it would run around, and a few seconds later would lie down, and then do this, and then do that, looking for ease, looking to feel good, never finding it. And uh, Ajahn Chah, in this chapter, he just talks about, yeah, that's how he was as a young monk, you know, Anytime he'd go to a monastery, the other monks would bother him. You know, they're not as serious as I am, he would describe, you know. And then he'd go out to the wilderness, you know, or to the forests in the more obscure places in Thailand as a wandering monk. And that didn't make him happy either. <laughs> and so he got curious about this, you know. Like his mind seemed to have a lot of reasons just like our minds, oh, this is why my retreat's not working. You know, they've changed how they do food here, or the, this is different, that's different, or I'm different in this way, or... And then uh, the Buddha said, no, the, the dog is restless like that because it has mange, which is, I don't know if you know, it says you get mites or some kind of insect that's causing this extreme itchiness. And it, it just can drive creatures crazy. I was mentioning to my partner, you know, when I was out hiking, this is a long, long time ago, 30 years ago or so, and, I, and a dog was there and he'd just gotten, uh, ran into porcupine and had quills, you know. And this is how it is when our mind takes a hold of some painful thing. It's like we're a little bit crazy, you know, just... Uh, um, just looking for relief. But the, the tragedy is looking for relief in ways that agitate the body, heart, and mind. And if you remember, this is exactly, I mean, as the Buddha reports it, this is exactly part of what motivated the Buddha to teach. Seeing beings who were seeking release that he was seeking and found, but doing exactly what causes the stress and the uneasiness. And that breaks our heart too. I'm sure we, each of us have examples, not as easy to see in ourselves, but in a friend, you know, where you see that friend just wants to be at ease, but the choices they're making are disturbing themselves. And they don't see it. And it breaks our heart because a lot of times it's not our place or it wouldn't help to say anything or we have said something and it hasn't changed anything. 
because we're, you know, we have this uh, delusion and these patterns of spinning with greed, hatred, and delusion, they have their momentum. He uses a simile. I don't know if this is from the suttas. It's, it's a little gross, but uh, he was he, uh, used the simile in this chapter, Ajahn Chah, the maggot, and dung, you know, poop. And how, like, even if you want to, even if you feel metta and compassion, you're going to rescue that maggot from its poop and move it gently, carefully, get a stick, and it's going to crawl back to the poop. And uh, he uses that because that's what we do. We're, we're attracted. Isn't that, isn't that the case today or in the last few days, maybe even hundreds of times, there was some wisdom that understood thinking about this isn't helping, right? But we crawl back to it. And, and we might have many times wisdom tried, did its best to skillfully, you know, all the different dharma moves. We do a little metta, we'll take a walk, we'll, you know, bring out the sort of wisdom but the mind crawls back to the poop. And, and yeah, it, I'm glad you're laughing because I think that, that humor can be really powerful. Like uh, it, it can go hand in hand with a very real resonant compassion. Oh, honey. Like, oh, this is what... And it, it's actually um, a really earthy anatta, the impersonal nature that's not me, <laughs> you know. That is just pure habit. That is just the momentum of habit, seeking happiness where it isn't. Because we have this, you know, this habit, this deep attraction to what's juicy, what's dramatic, what's intense. And we don't really have as much experience and haven't really cultivated a taste for peace and balance and evenness. And that's why, you know, equanimity is such a useful topic for us to reflect on. Not to fake. (laughs) Some of you know Michelle McDonald. Uh, Back in the 90s, I did some three-month retreats where she was one of the teachers and uh, really appreciated Michelle and she had this one line that was so great she said this is toward the end of one of the three month retreats and she said something like you know what's really great about long retreats you can shed a little bit of the false equanimity (laughs) that's really there's a lot of wisdom there like oh I don't have to pretend to be balanced there's some, I mean, it, it's ironic, but there's some real balance, equanimity in not having to fake it. And the last simile in this short chapter from Ajahn Chah in, in his book, Food for the Heart, there's probably a copy of it in the library. Um, but he, I, I really like this. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit more I don't know, provocative or subtle, this simile, but I think it's something to just hold and, and let work on you. Don't try to figure it out. But anyway, he, he gives the example of a log. 
in a river, you know, in a, a pretty substantial log that's not going to rot or fall apart. And, uh, and sure enough, he says, if that log stays in the river, it's going to get to the ocean. But it has to avoid the right bank and the left bank. And here's the provocative part, because that, that kind of makes sense, you know, okay. River's flowing along. I don't have to get myself to the ocean. I just need to stay in the river. So what's the problem? Well, it's the mind's habit of getting entangled. This bank is happiness, and this bank is unhappiness. He even says, this bank is love, this bank is hate. But not love in terms of metta, but love in terms of, I love a hamburger, or I love this, that attached love with attachment. And this, I think, I, I find this a really useful simile for understanding equanimity. Because it does, there is a price for equanimity. The peace of equanimity comes with a price. Which is that intensity of the drama of getting what we want. And it's not that we don't get what we want when we value equanimity. It just means the happiness we seek isn't the happiness of getting what we want. We still may get what we want. There's that line, I think, from the Bible. I mean, I get it exactly right, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else will be added on to you or something like that. So, and it doesn't mean that we don't do what can be done to avoid the unhappiness, the pain, the difficult. And some of you, I'm sure, have heard the Dalai Lama often repeat Shantideva, this, I think, ninth century Buddhist monk, saint, who wrote the treatise, The Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Uh, that may not be quite right, it's something like that. But anyway, the, the thing the Dalai Lama likes to repeat from Shantideva is, well, if there's something you can do to avoid this difficult situation that's not going to cause you or others harm, by all means do it. If there's nothing really you can do right now, then there's nothing you can do. But in either case, whether there's something you can do or there's nothing for you to do right now, why justify getting tight? Why abandon balance and ease, evenness, equanimity? If there's something to do, we'll do it. If there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do. So we can uh, just have that, you know, take pleasure where it comes naturally on retreat. Notice how, notice the contentedness. If we really let in pleasure when it shows up, well-being, wherever it comes, really be intimate. Relax, allow it to have its effect. And notice one of the effects is this 
the mind isn't desperate for pleasure when it has pleasure. (laughs) And that really evens things out. We notice the mind that isn't desperate to get away from pain and to get to pleasure. That's, you know, for those who have done some jhana practice, the, the flavor of the fourth jhana is the mind that isn't pushed around by pleasure and pain and the craving associated with pleasure and pain because it's appreciating the peace of not being in that duality of pleasure and pain. That's what the mind is orienting, abiding in. And then this more subtle work, more subtle practice, it's really about wise view. That the world, that our experience isn't here to make us happy. The meals aren't here to make us happy. The beautiful facilities, even our beautiful sits where there's a lot of stillness or calm, they're not here to make us happy. It's just the conditional expression of everything that's in motion. Real happiness, not the this bank, but real happiness is the happiness of non-dependence. Not needing to lift up the mountains. Experience comes and goes. Pleasure comes. We let it have its effect. If pain comes, we let it have its effect. So in a way, we're this... um, Understanding the flavor, the way of relating of equanimity and the flavor of equanimity really is, is sort of the, the way we begin to sense the freedom that the Buddhist teachings point to, this balance, the peace of that balance. So let's end our evening together by chanting the verses of sharing and aspiration on the backside of the refuges. And then we'll just sit for 30 seconds afterwards in silence. Enjoy the silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.